The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. If you could, please take your Bibles, uh, turn in them to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20, as well in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we have this wonderful picture of a God who is uh, at work, a triune God at work. And so we ask the question, so what is Jesus doing? It's not what would Jesus do, uh, but rather what is Jesus doing? Um, because the reality of these uh, truths is that um, our God hasn't left us. The Lord Jesus hasn't abandoned us. He is here among us. And so um, the reality is that we do his bidding and his work along with him alongside of us. And so um, the triune God is at work. What is, uh, what is Jesus doing is the question that we have. Howard, could you take the slides, please, and um, bring us to that point? Is there anyone up there? Great. All right. Mark chapter uh, 16. Um, read it with me, beginning at verse 15. It says, He said to them, uh, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Now note in verse 19, it says, after, Lord, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Now if it were to end right there, where would you say the Lord Jesus is? At that right hand of God, locally, somewhere out there. But it doesn't end there, does it? It says in verse 20, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And then this phrase, The Lord did what? The Lord worked with them. The Lord worked with them. Isn't that an amazing set of words? The Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by signs and wonders. And so as Jesus, this ascended Jesus, risen from the dead... Um, he doesn't depart from us. He doesn't leave us. He works with his disciples and he works with us. Go one gospel back, Matthew chapter 28. This is another um, set of words that speaks about this calling, this commission that God has given to us. In uh, verse 16, Jesus gathers these disciples in Galilee. Uh, they're at this mountain where Jesus had told them to go. They saw him, some worshipped him, some doubted. Then he says these words to them. And note as we look at these words that there are these, uh, these big phrase words like all and everything and always. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now you can translate that not necessarily as two commands. Go, make disciples, but one 
uh, set of words. In your going, do what? Make disciples. You will be going, right? You will be going. In all those places that you will be going, do this. Make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey. Another big phrase. What? Everything that I've commanded you. And then the promise, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Um, In your going, in your going, make disciples. And then you say the phrase. What, What comes after that? And I will be with you always. Here's the beautiful truth this morning. In our going, this triune God promises. Promises not to just go with us in the person of Christ, but to work through us. Isn't that an amazing uh, reality that you can have this foundation when we start to speak, speak about our calling, God at work? We've been in the series talking about life at work in a certain place. I was given the task to broaden that out you know, to the larger aspect of our triune God at work wherever we go in our going. And so then the, there are these questions then we ask. So uh, who am I then in the kingdom? And where am I to go within that kingdom? And what is it that God has given me to do in that kingdom? That's some big questions, aren't they? Um, we lie awake at night thinking about those things, or perhaps we don't even think about them, but now you know, the Holy Spirit is rising those questions up and saying, you know, it's about time we started to pay attention to the bigger the bigger questions. So let's phrase this around a formula uh, to answer some of those questions. The formula being this. If you take your station in life and you combine that with wherever God has placed you, your location, you will end up knowing then your vocation or your calling. That word vocation comes from a, a Latin word to call, right? Vocal, to call out. So your station in life is what God has made you to be and to do. So you're a father, you're a mother, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a child, you have friends, you're an employer or employee. I happen to be a pastor in a certain place. I live in the city of Sterling Heights. I am a pastor called to be here at Faith Lutheran Church. Your station, your location equals then your vocation, your calling. And now here's the reality though is that majority of us sometimes aren't satisfied with our station, our location, or our calling. We have other ideas about it, don't we? We have some things to say to God about it, thinking that we deserve you know, a different location or another set of responsibilities. And so there are some resistance points to vocation, three of them specifically. The three resistance points deal with the enemies that each of us struggle on a daily basis. Our own sinful flesh, our desire to want to be like God. Um, so that's one. The world that we live in attacks us. And then there is this very real attack from the evil one with all his angels and his archangels coming against this commission. And so there is this uh, relentless, insatiable desire built into each one of us to be in control. Is there not? This insatiable desire to be in control. And what is that? That is the desire to be like God. Turn to James chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through following, and James speaks of this, um, this desire to have it all planned out. 
And behind that is this idea of, you know what, we're just going to plan the work and then we'll just work the plan and we'll make it all happen and we have some ideas about the future, what's going to happen in a year from now. Um, and so in James chapter 4, James says, uh, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this or that city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to carry on business, we're going to make money. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen to your life. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and what's the phrase? If it is the Lord's will. If it is the Lord's will. How many of you desire to live and have it all planned out beyond today, right? I mean, we'll go home and we'll plan out our week. And then we'll think about our month, the rest of the year. We'll think about maybe, you know, the years to come, our retirement, have it all planned out. Uh, Not wrong to plan, In fact, you know, somewhat of a godly gift to think through life and to say, you know what, I think, you know what, and it it seems to me, or to say, you know what, I, hon, what do you want? I know what maybe I want for our future, you know, so these are good phrases. I want, I think, it seems clear to me. Where does the problem come into play? When all of a sudden this insatiable desire to be like God comes in and our plans then are interrupted. Our plans are interrupted, and we say, well, wait a minute, I thought I'm going to go to this city, spend some time there, make money, carry on business, and God interrupts it and says, you better pay attention to what your life really is. It's a mist. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, in your planning, if it is the Lord's will, in your station in life, in your location of life, in your vocation, if it is the Lord's will. So you see this uh, even among the disciples. Uh, If you think that Planning out a year is, uh, you know, kind of critical to your life. Think about planning out the redemptive, you know, plan of salvation. Peter does this, and Jesus begins to speak to his disciples and said, you know what, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, I must suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, I will be crucified, I will die, and on the third day I will rise again. Peter only hears the first part of it, he doesn't hear the rise again part of it, It does not set well with Peter, so what does he do? Matthew chapter 16, it says, Peter. Peter, the one who walked with Jesus, takes him aside and says to him, never, Lord. I I think he was probably a little bit more, you know. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Turns to Peter, looks past Peter to the one behind Peter, and he, as if he speaks, he goes right through Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will We'll find it. And so there is this calling of Jesus as you follow him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, to rise again, and Peter takes exception to that. And Jesus has to look at him and say, he says to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Can it be said of me and of you as we think about our days, our tomorrows, a year from now? What is it that we have as a central thought, the things of God or the things of men. Jesus speaks to Peter about the Father's will. And Jesus, of all people, knows this phrase, if it is the Lord's will. What does he say in the garden? 
Father, if you can take this cup from me, do it. But not my will, but your will be done. What is the Lord's will? The Lord's will is to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. And here Peter is trying to get in the way of that and says, no, 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 the purpose should be to rule and to reign. Again, things of men, right? Not the things of God. The things of God revolve around these deep things that need to go to this insatiable desire to be in control, the desire to be like God, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. So why don't we practice saying that phrase? It's hard, isn't it? But let's say it together. If it is the Lord's will. Now, how can we say that phrase? We can say that phrase because when we look to the triune God and we see the sacrifice of Christ saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Here's the spirit to do the will of the Father and the Son. We then can say the triune God has all things under his control. Does he not? Brings us into relationship with him from eternity to eternity. He is working it out. The Father in eternity, choosing us, electing us, predestined, these are all biblical words. The Son in time, accomplishing the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit in time, offering to us the, the gift of forgiveness and the means, the vehicles of his grace, word, and sacrament. Christ ruling and reigning, not far away, but among us. He has all things under his control. And that's the only way that I have found that there can be any sense of peace in letting go of what my next steps are, your next steps. I have in mind, you know, a year from now, I'll go to this or that city, spend a year, carry on business, make money. But by grace, the Holy Spirit leading us, we can say, if it is the Lord's will. Okay, that's the first resistance to our vocation. The second is, there is a serious worldly attack on contentment. Uh, two places we can turn is Philippians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. Philippians chapter 4 is this prison letter. It's written in the context of suffering. And so these are going to be strange words that come out of this suffering context. But it is Paul speaking about a contentment that comes in the person and the work of Christ. Paul says, Philippians chapter 4, again, strange words for one suffering. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. What's the phrase? The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so the gift that God gives to us is this peace of God that transcends all understanding. Contentment is not about circumstantially things are working out for me. Contentment is circumstances aren't. But somehow there is this peace that comes that surpasses all understanding and centered in it is the will of Christ. Paul continues verse 13. He says, you know, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. So can there be discontent in need? That's an easy one, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can there be discontent in having plenty? Well, you know it, and I know it, because of the sinful nature. You may have all this stuff, but then you find that there's something still not right. Paul says, I've learned to be content, whether I'm in need or whether in plenty. He says, I have found that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, don't see the glorious riches in Christ Jesus as somewhat of a transaction event where there's a certain amount of dollars in the account of the heavenlies that are now placed into your account so that now you have this life that you wanted uh, financially. It's not that. The riches of God in Christ Jesus speak of something far different than the things of men. Peter had in mind the things of men. Things of God... The riches of God, the Father in Christ Jesus, it's the forgiveness of sins. Romans 8 speaks of that. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, understand this, that if God the Father met the deepest need, a reconciled relationship that he initiated, he initiated reconciliation between us and himself, through his Son, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit giving us faith. If he did that, and he took care of that greatest need, and the glorious riches of that is farther than we can think from east to west or from north to south, he says then, so why are you troubled about all this other stuff that is happening in your life? Yes, it's irritating, isn't it? But the place of contentment doesn't mean the irritations go away. The place of contentment is profound that you get this peace that surpasses all understanding. And so the hope we have is that the triune God desires then to give us all of his gifts. All of his gifts in our station in life, in the location that he has placed us for our vocation. Now some of you, like myself, may argue with God about these things. You're upset about your station. Some of you who are single want to be married. Some of you who are married hit a really tough spot and you're saying, you know what, I just don't know about this relationship. It'd be much easier to be single. Some of you cry out in your heart to be a parent. You desire to conceive and to have this child. Others of you are in the middle of the child-rearing years and a prodigal has gone astray and it's brought you so much heartache. Some of you are in a station in life where you're saying, you know what, It just doesn't seem to be fulfilling at all in the workplace. In fact, you know what? There's a better location. I want to transfer out of here. And you have these arguments with God about, well, why is this happening to another person and not happening to me, and only if this would occur? And so you ask the questions in these complex um, circumstances. I think I find that to simplify is the better way when things get complex, to simply ask the question, who am I? And then to go about it. Who am I? And here's the station responses I get. Who am I? I'm Paul. And I am married to Faye. And I am father to Joshua and Jacob and AJ. I'm not father to your kids. You're not father to my kids. And I live in a certain area of Sterling Heights. That's the location. Those are my neighbors. I'm a pastor. That's another station in life. I have a call here to be a pastor at this place in Troy, Michigan. And it is about, say, 11.45-ish on a Sunday morning, and guess who you get to preach this morning? There's no one else up here, is there? It's a station, location, and you take heart then that the vocation, that the calling is, that God orchestrated it all to happen this way at this time, and then we just move boldly and confidently with, so what is Jesus now doing among us? And so you simplify Now, you want to ask those questions about 
you know, the next day and the next day and the next day, but God doesn't necessarily give you answers. So I have plans for tomorrow and for next week and for the rest of 2016. You have plans, right? But we say, if it is the Lord's will. But right now, who am I? And we are present to it. Now, this sounds very new agey, doesn't it? Present to it, attentive to it, kind of zen right? But this is far better than any Zen uh, perspective that you could have because it includes the person and the work of Christ. So here we are, present. Present to do what? Present to acknowledge the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In word, in worship, as we gather together, where two or three are gathered, the scriptures say what? Jesus says, there I am with you. And so we are present to acknowledge his presence among us. And with his presence among us, as the word is opened up, as the sacrament is given to you, what does the Lord dispense? His presence or his gifts. Gracious gifts. Gifts that you long for. Gifts that your heart doesn't even know that it needs. Chief among them being the forgiveness of sins and from that flowing all other gifts. And what moment is that for? I'm not going to go backwards. There are things we need to confess about backwards, but we are here in this present moment. Can't rob tomorrow. Go into tomorrow. It's for this present moment. So we are attentive to that, acknowledging the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he wants to give to us gracious gifts that only he can give to us, and those are for this moment right now, right now. And then the trust that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, if the Lord tarries, that's kind of an old word, but I like it, tarries, what does it mean? He just kind of, I don't know if it means takes his time or he decides to wait, But as long as he decides to tarry, we will cry out with hands open to receive those gifts. Third resistance to this vocation is very real, though perhaps unseen, and it is a devilish resistance to the commission. A devilish. Struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. The devil and all his angels are out to thwart this mission of Christ. Get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So turn to Romans chapter 10, and we will see. We will see that this God, this triune God, has a desire. And if I were to ask you, who does the triune God desire to save, what would your answer be? All people. The scriptures are very clear about that. God, the triune God, desires to save all people. Does that mean we just sit here and wait for him to do it? The next thing that he wants us to know is that he desires to do what? To use us to accomplish that. These are some weighty, heavy thoughts about salvation for all people and how God wants to accomplish it. Romans 10, Paul says these words. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, what is the promise? You will be saved. Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now now note Paul's logic on this. He says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? So what comes first? Belief, and then you call on the name of the Lord, or you call on the name of the Lord, and then you get faith? No. It's the working of the Holy Spirit to give you belief. And when you have belief, then what do you do? You open your mouth, you declare Jesus is Lord. 
So Paul says, trace the logic. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The message is heard through the word of Christ. In your going, make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you always, and the promise is that I will work with you. So what is our responsibility, and what is God's responsibility? Because there's this heavy weight that you're thinking now about, well, God desires all to be saved, and he wants to use me. So I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm capable of that. I, I don't think I can do that. Well, let's get it straight. What is our responsibility? What is God's? Well, it's not our responsibility to do the following. We can't. It's not our responsibility to convict someone of their sin. It's not our responsibility to convert them or to convince them or to create faith in them. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I came to you with weakness and in fear with much trembling. My message wasn't with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. My message was not with these wise persuasive words that your faith might not rest on whose wisdom? Men's wisdom, but on God's power. Aren't you glad that your faith does not rest on something that I say? Oh, Paul, he convinced me. Or Paul, you know, he convicted me. No, this is not what Paul says. This is not what your friend says. This is not what you say to another person. It is the one using the words that you say. Not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. The Spirit's working. So whose responsibility is to do all those things? To convict, to convince, to create faith, to turn, to convert, to bring to repentance. Holy Spirit's work. Now don't you feel all of a sudden just relieved that that is not on me, is it? So you're not like some kind of gospel salesman where you have to go and make, you know, make the pitch and close the deal, right? No. What is your responsibility? Your responsibility, my responsibility, is to clearly, when you have opportunity to talk, to communicate God's word, law, and gospel. And when you communicate the law, the promise is that the Holy Spirit will do his work to turn somebody away from their sin, to convince them that they need a Savior, to convict them, to point it out to them how far away they are from God, that they need reconciliation. And then you rush in and you share the gospel the best that you can, knowing that Christ died for sinners of whom you are the worst, and you share that with another person. And who's working there? The Holy Spirit. And you have this conversation back and forth and your sole responsibility is to give voice the best that you can with the opportunity that you have in your station, in your location, wherever you're at, to clearly communicate it. Now, what would be a good way to pray about that? Well, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 4. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. With that understanding, isn't it? I mean, it's my responsibility to clearly communicate. So, devote Give yourself to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being what? Watchful and thankful. 
And pray for us, too, that God may open up a door or an opportunity so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains and pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Isn't that about your vocation? You pray. Okay, in my coming and my going, in my stations in life, wherever God takes me a location, I'll pray, look for an opportunity, see what God will do in that opportunity. Maybe there's a moment where I can speak. When that moment comes, I pray, let me proclaim it clearly as I should. Holy Spirit, you must, you must be the teacher, you must be the counselor, you must be the one who gives me the words. And help me. That when I have conversations with people, I do it in a respectful way, worthy of the gospel, full of grace, seasoned with salt. I can talk to another person and tell them, you know what, I love you, I am concerned about you, and you you know what, you're not my evangelism project today. But God has orchestrated in such a way my station, this location, a certain time, and can we have a conversation about this? Now, let's close with 2 Peter chapter 3. And some of you perhaps, like me, wonder, so why is it, why is it that the Lord tarries? Why is it that, you know, he just doesn't reappear, set things straight, establish the new heavens and the new earth? And we get an answer. And it's a surprising answer. And it is also a convicting answer to each one of us. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, Individuals are having these questions about why is it that the, the Lord is tearing? He said that he would reappear. Why is it his kingdom slow in, in coming to us? So Peter says these words. He says, so do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is what, patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It shames me sometimes when I say, oh Lord, would you just reappear? Because I'm tired of what? Dealing with this world. It shames me because the Lord speaks back to me, Paul, don't you understand that I tarry, I'm waiting because I am patient because there are Many who do not know this message of reconciliation in my son, the Lord Jesus. That's why I'm tarrying. You want to speed its coming? You want the kingdom really to you know, come forth? Well, I'll give you something to do. And so Peter continues. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, talking about the end times, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Uh, looking to God, holy to God. Look forward to the day of God and you speed its coming. We are to look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do you speed the coming of the kingdom of God? How? You share, you share the law and the gospel. Because the kingdom of God, the final New heavens and the new earth will only come when the last person who is to believe believes. And God has entrusted you and me with that commission, has he not? And so that's now why we ask these questions. Who am I in the kingdom? Where am I in the kingdom? What am I to do 
in the kingdom. Not just present day questions about my you know, station and vocation in life here, but these have eternal ramifications also, don't they? Now, with that in mind, there's always some uh, introspection and uh, confession that comes along with that. And so, uh, to do that, uh, Martin Luther wrote this in his um, small catechism. It's about the office of the keys. And he says here, so what sins should we confess? Um, He says, well, before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those which we are not aware of as we do in the Lord's Prayer. And so, would you agree that there are certain sins that we are totally blind to, have no idea that we've committed? If you don't think that, just ask somebody that you're in relationships with and they will be more than happy to point them, point them out to you, right? And so the Lord's Prayer, in a broad way, says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. There are things that I have done, left undone, things I don't know about. But, but then uh, to ease the conscience so that we don't have to list all of these uh, Luther talking about confession says, when you go to the pastor then, confess only these sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And so he didn't want to burden a conscience with having to say, list all of them. And then you walk away from confession and you say, oh, I forgot that one, I've got to run back. No, he says, you think about it. What are these then? What are these that burden your heart? And you know what he says, how to do that? He says, you do this this way. Consider your place in life or your station in life. And you put that next to the Ten Commandments. And then you ask the question, so are you a father and a mother, or a son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Those are your stations, your place. And then to analyze that in the context of the Ten Commandments, have you been disobedient in that station, unfaithful or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm. A lot of things in there, isn't there? A lot of things to think through. As a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a friend, employee, employer, a pastor, a lot of things to say, I have sinned, I have failed, I have fallen short. And a conscience then is burdened. Burdened with the sense of, you know what, I have been trying to quench this insatiable desire to be in control. And it's relentless, and I want, want it so badly that it has caused much hurt to others. And you know what? Uh, I have despised my calling in life. I have despised my station and location in life. I have not been content with it. The world has lied to me about better places. There's more. You can have all of these things. And I have even given in to the devilish resistance of the evil one to say, you know what, I think I can just sit this one out. Let somebody else do that commission stuff. I don't necessarily feel like going to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die and to join Christ in his death and picking up my cross. And the devilish resistance comes and just thwarts that. Much to confess, is there not? But there's also the promise that when we do that, the chief gift... Forgiveness of sins is given to us. And Christ, in this present moment, is present, really present in the body and blood, with the bread and the wine, to give you his gift, the forgiveness of sins, to take all those failures, those faults of this life that you have, and to cleanse it, and to have him now work in you, 
to work through you, to go with you into your week, saying this bold statement, you know what? If it is the what? If it is the Lord's will. If it is the Lord's will. Here am I. Send me, send me. Grace me, gift me with all that you need to do in my life. You take some quiet moments. You... You confess, you prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper. I'm going to set the table. I'll lead you in a time of general confession, say the words of institution, and then invite you to come forward. We confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We've sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. As a called servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in his place by his command, I say to you this morning, your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.